Hi, everybody. Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I'm Louise Palenker. You know, here in the Media Path podcast, our job is to sort through all of the recent releases in all media, hopefully finding things that are worthy of your attention. Books, movies, streaming, cable broadcast, whatever. Think of us as your personal shoppers in the media big box store. <laughs> We've got some great suggestions for you today, and we are so happy to have a guy who is truly one of the most loved and appreciated people in the entertainment business. He's an actor who's been in some of the funniest movies ever made. He's been an environmentalist since before the climate began to change. He did a movie about the electric car when Elon Musk was still in high school. He's an <laughs> environmental entrepreneur with some great eco-conscious products to tell us all about. Ed Begley Jr. is going to be here in just a minute. Really looking forward to talking to my friend Ed. But Wheezy, what do you have for us? All right, so Fritz, in order to travel down a media path, you need a pathway. For many boomers, that pathway involves a major thoroughfare called either cable or satellite. We like our channels. We grew up on channels. We want channels. Sure, we've got Netflix, Prime, Hulu, off-ramps, but we steer our DVR remote right back onto the cable highway and the familiar twists and turns of our channels. I was not at all ready to cut any cords, Fritz and Ed. I was going to my grave clutching my TiVo remote, but the evil empire of Spectrum Cable was playing not at all well with TiVo, which they began calling a third-party DVR once they had successfully stolen his secrets and begun cramming their own inferior DVRs into their spot <laughs> spotty and bloated packages— the night before I went in for back surgery, I was down to zero channels. Nerve pain is debilitating, but no MSNBC. I'm on the verge of tears telling the story. Spectrum's game is one we'll call hold and transfer. They keep you on hold for hours and then they transfer you. This goes on for days. It's like the car salesman who goes to speak to his manager. He's playing Tetris in his cubicle until you start to twitch. <laughs> Or the detective who disappears while you panic. This has only happened to Fritz once, and his alibi was solid. <laughs> okay, so one day out of surgery, Spectrum Representative 17 tells me my TiVo will eventually be completely unsupported. So by eventually, you mean yesterday when I stopped getting any channels? She has me order an Apple TV, which will come with a Spectrum app on which I will receive my channels, allegedly. Okay, it's time to learn and change. I will get the hang of it. I never got the hang of it. You can not pause. You can't fast forward. You can't record shows with this app. That plus during another day of hold and transfer, my monthly bill had reached over $300 while MSNBC and CNN were deleted from my lineup and replaced with Spanish language channels. I was ready to jump myself out of the spectrum cult, and I was able to do this with the aid of the life draft. That is, grab a pencil, pull over, write this down, YouTube TV. My monthly bill is $96. You get a bunch of great channels, including your major networks and news networks. You can add packages to suit. I selected HBO Max and Showtime and Stars. You can select live sports or additional streaming services. Whatever you are into, you can pause, rewind, record. Whatever you, you are used to doing with cable, it works on Apple TV, Roku, Fire Stick, etc. However you are receiving your, your streaming services. So if you are thinking about cutting the cord, take a look at YouTube TV and you are welcome. I just got the Apple TV. Okay. And it's the thing where you have, the, they put the box at the back of the TV. And then when you turn the TV on, there are 50 or 60 different boxes and you have to click on Spectrum. And it takes 30 seconds for the Spectrum thing to load in there. And that's my complaint. There's no way to record anything. How do you record stuff? You quit Spectrum and you're going to need someone to help you jump out because when you try to quit them, they put you on hold. It would be like if you walk if you walked up to the checkout line with your items and you said, I actually don't need bananas. And they were like, you are not allowed to reenter the store. You will buy these bananas or or die trying not to. Wow. Yeah. It's Good for you. Spectrum. Well, a lot of people are doing that. Young yeah. people don't have cable. You know, you know, people under 50. <laughs> That That's why we're having this conversation, because people our age are stuck. We're, we're familiar with our channels, and we don't know what else to do, but it's become kind of unwieldy to figure out, you know, what do you do, Ed? I, uh, I have a millennial. You know, I've got uh, a 21-year-old. I guess that's a millennial, and so she— <laughs> handles all that for if I can't figure it but I still have my old uh, 2008 TV that's a you know it's a uh, 
very just you know kind of a normal settings it's AT&T so I record everything See? I've got my Roku so that's how I'm doing it I'm have that thing that you probably don't need with an Apple no, TV. No, you can get a stick. No, it's the same. I, I did that. It's like a fire stick, right? Right. Yeah, but now, you does can... that record stuff? The Roku record I can record. Stuff? I can do everything. I've wow. got all of that. But I have AT&T. What is that? That's also called something else. AT&T and it's not Spectrum. What is it? Fiber? I think it might be. Wow. See, the thing is what, with boomers, like we kind of know what we're doing. We don't know why we're doing it or how to not do it. Oh, it's DirecTV. That's what it is. The DirecTV AT and T combo. We 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 learned a thing, and like what like if I press this, something will print. But we wouldn't know how to. If I have a problem, I call my daughter, who's away at college, to help. She'll help you. She'll she'll help me, and she'll solve the problem with a phone or something. And she she does it. I'm pretty good with most stuff. I started computing in 1984. I bought my first computer and didn't do it just for games. I played a few games, but I did it for you know financial stuff and I did it for word processing and I was pretty serious about it. So I'm I'm pretty good with most stuff, but some stuff I just can't figure and I get my daughter on it. No, that's exactly. That's why we've had. That's why we exactly. Okay, I got a, a good pick here. I alone can fix it. Donald J. Trump's catastrophic final year. This is a fantastic book written by Phil Rucker and Carol Lenny, who are both with The Washington Post. If you were fascinated and disturbed by their last book called The Very Stable Genius, this is going to grab you by the esophagus the same way. What's fascinating about it is Rucker and Lenny were scorched earth about the former president in their last book. Yet Trump sat down with them to do two-hour-plus interviews for the book. Seems like a masochistic exercise. He didn't care what I they said. I swear to God, Fritz, if we showed up there and said, would you talk to us, he, Ser- he would. Seriously. I Alone Can Fix It walks you through the last year of the Trump administration, the missteps with the pandemic, the revolving door of sycophants and lawyers, the unending chaos, which Rucker and Lenig seem to think is what President Trump really secretly thrives on, the chaos. He loves chaos regardless of how destructive it is. The best in the book comes first, I think. It's a detailed description of how COVID was born in Wuhan, China. They identify patient one and patient two in the United States. It's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Patient one's in Chicago. Patient two is in Washington State. And the book is uh, really just a a detailed recap of a time in our lives that might not need recapping because we just lived through the horror of it. But with the excellent journalism of Phil Rucker and Carol Lennig, you'll find yourself saying to yourself, I'm not nuts. This really happened Here's why and how. A really good book. I'm buying it. I wrote it down so I didn't forget, and uh, I'm going to get it. It's so thank really you. good. I I've mean, seen it promoted on MSNBC a bit. I'm going to get it. And what you will think of in, in when you complete this book is how is it possible that not only Trump himself and his immediate family, but his immediate circle of friends committed so much malfeasance, particularly in that last year, covering him up, that nobody's been prosecuted. The only people that were prosecuted were people that happened at the beginning, you know, what's his name, that, that got uh, pardoned. And right. The, but all of the broken laws, and nobody has honestly paid a price for it, yet it's it's astounding and depressing. But he, he vetted, you know how most people are vetted to work in administration? He vetted for corruption. <laughs> That's he right. He wanted only corrupt people who had secrets so that they wouldn't rat anybody. Well, right. Good book. I recommend it. Yeah. That's the way mafia dons That's work, exactly I'm told. Right, yes, That's exactly yeah. right, Yeah, exactly right. All right, so my next pick is a guilty pleasure, and uh, but I, I actually feel no guilt. I just feel the pleasure. Uh, this is Big Brother. I watch it every summer. Big Brother is a reality show in which 16 contestants move into a house slash soundstage, probably parking lot, isolated from the world and tracked by 94 cameras and 194 microphones. They spend their summer engaged in a psychological battle where your only companions are your competitors. I find it absolutely fascinating. It's a game of skill, strategy, and social manipulation. The winner goes home with $750,000 and probably a lot more social media followers. Now, until this summer, they had been casting what I will call Caucasian hotties and alpha dudes and bikini girls. Uh, There would be your diversity tokens, but alliances would form early and implicit biases would kick in. In 2019, the first four contestants voted out were people of color. This season, the cast is diverse, and almost immediately... 
And this is what's so fascinating to me. The black contestants formed a secret alliance, which they are calling the cookout. To cloak their strategy, the cookout members are each working closely with a fellow house guest outside of their alliance. Now, you may say, oh, my gosh, they have formed an alliance based on race. That's racist. And I would say, well, here's the thing. When a black person walks into a historically white environment and sees another black person, they see a friend. When a white person walks into a historically white environment and sees another white person, we see a stranger. The greater good here is that the cookout wants to see a black person win Big Brother. Although the white alpha males were voted off early, which is kind of unprecedented in all of Big Brother history, no person of color has ever even been on the block yet for eviction until this week, and that contestant is clearly a pawn. He will not go home. Ratings are up. The gameplay is smart and strategic. The house guests are interesting and engaging. I am all about it. Big Brother airs three times a week on CBS or the streaming Paramount Plus app, where you can also watch live feeds from the house. You can literally watch Big Brother 24 hours a day, but I can't really recommend it. I think you should hydrate. Um, do you think that the uh, geniuses behind the uh, reality TV set that racial dynamic up because I'm of sure the they do. I'd be shocked. If yeah, they I think there was a statement from the head of CBS about diversity in casting on all of their reality shows because they were they were receiving a lot of complaints. Wow. And in fictional work, there's some great stuff being out there about race and privilege and lots of other deep, deep things. It's fictional, of course, but it's wonderful. I'm talking about White Lotus. Have you seen that show? I, I haven't seen oh it, but everybody's talking about it. It's and I so love Mike good. White. He's a great And writer. Jennifer Coolidge is, knocks it out of the park, home run. Great. Everybody's great in it. But it's about deep and meaningful stuff. It's a comedy. It's a very, 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 very dark comedy. But it's wonderful. Mike White, who did uh, he's fantastic. Uh, that show with Laura Dern, Enlightenment, has done it again. It's just, he's amazing. It's such great writing, great direction, visually great. And the cast is amazing, and but it's about something. I really love the show. My yeah. friends have all asked me about it. Now I got to get on the. Yeah, you're you're going to like it. I'm about to dive in. I was. I just needed to, you know, my channels. Yeah. I'm ready to go. <laughs> you got to have your channels to watch it. I understand. <laughs> all right, here's another in the tsunami of post-Trump books. It's another good one. It's Michael Wolff's Landslide. This is the follow-up to his other blockbuster called Fire and Fury. The title Landslide is what Trump tried to convince us he had actually won the 2020 election by. And like the Phil Rucker, Carol Lennig book, this is the chaotic wake of the Trump administration's last year. It gives you more concrete evidence of what you already knew, that our country was being run by unqualified sycophants. It walks you through Trump's ill-fated election challenges, the surreal second impeachment trial, the immoral mishandling of the COVID crisis, some scary revelations about how Trump balked at calling off the violent mobs in the Capitol on January 6th, along with his discussions about actually proclaiming martial law. What you have in Landslide is a laundry list of the ways over the last year that the hubcaps nearly came off of democracy. Another good read. Wow. And I would like to recommend Landslide by Stevie Nicks. It's a very good song. Uh -huh. okay. Yes. Another good landslide. <laughs> In a slightly different format. I, I agree. All right. Now or to our amazing guest. I'm so happy to get a chance to talk to Ed. This man is an actor, an environmental activist. He's appeared in literally hundreds of films, TV shows, and stage shows. You need the Dewey Decimal System to get through his IMDb page. <laughs> Here are just a few of my faves. Best in show, a mighty win for your consideration, any of the Christopher Guest masterpieces. He's been on groundbreaking television, St. Elsewhere, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, Maud, Curb, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Better Call Saul, Arrested Development, The Simpsons, even My Three Sons. And we had uh, some guests from that show on just a week or so ago. Livingston Bros. The Livingston Bros here. One of his great accomplishments that he put up at one of my favorite venues, the El Portal Theater in North Hollywood, is that he wrote and directed Caesar and Ruben, a musical about Caesar Chavez. One of his most important works, I think, was Who Killed the Electric Car? This was mm. back in 2006, which talked about all the things that kept the electric car from getting traction. These days, he's become an echo entrepreneur. He spearheaded a line of environmentally sound products called Ed Begley's Earth Responsible Products. We're going to talk about them. You can find them on his website at BegleyLiving.com. Uh, that has his environmental musings and products and activities and the uh, exploits of his gorgeous family, including his wife, Rachel, and their three children. <laughs> Happy Thank to see you, my friend. So Thanks. good to see you. Thanks for coming over. You're so present all the time for these wonderful causes we both care about, for the Orangutan Republic and other great 
organizations, helping out animals, helping out the environment, many other worthy causes. Hats off to you, pal. Thank you for always being there. I, I feel the same way about you. As a matter of fact, the first time I met you was about 40 years ago at an American Cancer Society benefit at the Equestrian Center, and you and I were the first two people there. And there was nothing going on. We were just waiting for you know them to set up the jumps. And that's right. That's <laughs> right. I remember that now. My God, that is many that years ago. a long ago. time ago. Well done, sir. Uh, let's go back to history. Yeah, your your talent might be hereditary because you had a very talented actor father, Ed Begley Sr. Talk about your dad a little bit. You know, he was a great actor and really a great dad, too. He was gone a lot at the time. I thought, my dad's never here. He was actually there a lot when he was not working off in some distant land or distant city. And when we were together, we were really together and had great times together, driving cross-country, taking the train cross-country. I was a young man back in the 50s, you know, growing up in the 50s and early 60s. I, I was born in 1949. So back then, you did not fly across country unless you're the daughter and son of, you know, Clark Gable or somebody. <laughs> you would go. But people like my dad, you know, kind of a working, stiff actor, we would take the train or drive. That's where he went cross country, and it was spectacular. So I have it in my blood still. I like to take those trips cross country. I've been working on some shows, you know, driving to Albuquerque recently for a show, and I just love it. I love the open road. I love my dad. He was a great actor. He was in 12 Angry Men and Sweet Bird of Youth, won yeah, an Oscar for that. Man, so oh man. I became an actor because of him. If he had been a plumber, I'd be fitting pipe now. Your dad, according to Wikipedia, which is where I learned things, <laughs> dropped out of school in fifth grade. He did. What kind of a kid? I mean, it's like eight o'clock. Has any has anyone seen Ed? Uh, eight o'clock of next week. Has anyone seen? Like, how do you disappear at age? What is that? Ten? Yeah, I don't know what he did. What caused him to leave like that? Part of it was the lure of being in a carnival or a circus, or you know, he won a Charlie Chaplin contest when he was quite <laughs> young. You know, that was part of the lure. But what drove him away? There must have been something very dangerous going on in his home or around his home for him to leave home at that age. I don't know what that's about. I haven't gotten to the bottom of it, but he did very well. Very erudite man. You would have thought he had a uh, degree of some sort. He had not. He didn't, as you noted, he dropped out of fifth grade. So, But he read voraciously, and he always had a dictionary next to his chair. And if he didn't know a word, he looked it up. And very well-spoken, very bright guy that you wouldn't know was well-schooled. Did he support you wanting to go into show business and you went in when you were a child? It was tricky for him because he didn't want to hand it to me. I have a, had a much older brother, Tom, that actually was my cousin. That's the source of a whole nother chapter we'll do. It. We'll spend a day on that talking <laughs> down the line with my therapist here. But uh, <laughs> but so he had a much I had a much older brother, let's call him. And he <laughs> and he, Tom, had was in a nightclub, not a nightclub, a vaudeville act with my father. And he did a lot of that kind of stuff with my dad. At some point when he was a teenager, he went, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be playing with my friends and you made me go on stage. And so my dad said, I'll never do that again. So even though my sister and I wanted it and begged him to go on interviews, he kind of didn't forbid it. Just said, "You, if you want to do it, you do it on your own. But then some miraculously, Fritz, how did I go on the, about five, six different interviews from age 10 to age 17? I mean, I, I got it because I was Ed Begley's son. Somehow, I got out on these interviews, but I got no work whatsoever. Why? I hadn't trained. I had no training. Imagine the son of a plumber saying, I'm going to go ride in the truck today and do a plumber's job. You know, you got to learn how the pipes fit together. And you were on a sitcom as a child, but you were on My Three Sons, right? My first job, I got it when I was 17. As I said, I'd, I'd interviewed for other things, gone on different job interviews, never gotten anything with no training. Finally did some training, going in this job get the job, do the job. I leave my makeup on because I've got a paper route I have to still satisfy at 3 p.m., the late paper, the Herald Examiner in L.A. I'm out delivering my papers. Seriously, Fritz, hoping somebody recognizes me and goes, oh, you've got makeup on. Are you an actor? And hire you on the spot. So you were so proud of it. I was so proud of it. I was in my dad's business. I had gotten into Screen Actors Guild, and I literally thought the phone was going to ring off the hook and quickly. And I didn't get much work, so I kind of shifted gears. I became a camera assistant for a while, you know, pulling focus, doing that job, and doing the slate and loading camera magazines back then with film cameras. And so I learned a lot about that, did that. But then, you know, the acting work kind of beckoned again. It pulled me back in on this show called Room 222. Oh, yeah, of course. Great show. Yeah. And Gene Reynolds was a friend of my dad's and a child actor himself. And also James L. Brooks, I believe, was a writer on that show. So I wound up getting... 
a job here and there on that show and got back into acting. And then it finally took off with St. Elsewhere. And did he ever say to you, you, you are talented. I'm glad you're pursuing this. This is not a stretch for you. What I mean is, did he support you after you got a little of your own momentum? He did. He came to Valley College where I studied and he saw me in a few plays and had found something nice to say that I don't, I don't know where he found any reason <laughs> to be nice about what I was doing on stage there. I failed miserably at Valley College, but that's how you learn. You don't learn from your successes or being cute or whatever you think you are, or all your little bag of tricks. You learn from failure, and I learned that quickly and started. But he, I, I didn't work. I worked more as a cameraman when he was still alive, Fritz. He died when I was 20. It was mostly camera work, but he'd drive me to the set sometimes to work as an assistant cameraman, grab a cup of coffee at the coffee urn there and say, how's my boy doing? Is he doing okay? Aww. And he was very proud. What were some of the more interesting sets that you got to be on? With my dad, I was on the set of uh, I was on the set of Unsinkable Molly Brown. I was backstage at Advice and Consent. I was backstage at Look Homeward Angel. I was backstage, uh, and he took me to a few plays on Broadway. He was not in. Also, I got to see The Miracle Worker on Broadway with uh, Anne Bancroft and Patty Duke. I got to see um, with Pete and Dud, Peter Moore and Dudley. Oh, Dudley yeah. Moore and Peter Cook, my God, right, my brains. Right. You know, they did uh, Beyond the Fringe and then Behind the Fringe yeah. and all these plays. So I saw some Broadway stuff and really wanted to be an actor. But what little I did, he was very proud. But then he died when I was 20, not yet 21. And somehow after that, things began to pick up. And I could then call myself a working actor because I worked in all those Owen Marshall, Counselor at Law, Mannix, you know, Adam 12, all those shows we watched. You were like your dad. You were a working actor. Working actor. It wasn't about being the lead. It was about doing the work. And you just accumulated this swimming pool full of credits. Right. And it seemed like a good gig. There was no big ups or downs, just kind of steady work his whole life from when he really became successful as an actor, which was in his 40s. Before that, he was a factory worker at the wire mole plant in Hartford, Connecticut. He was born and raised in Hartford. So he was really a factory worker that made it in his mid-40s. He was did some theater in New York. He was directed by Kazan and 12, not in, directed by Ily Kazan and All My Sons oh. on Broadway and many other wonderful plays. And then he was a big hit in radio, too, in New York, Fibber McGee and all those shows and Aldrich Family and Mike Diamond, Private Detective, working actor. And then he began to work in Hollywood and different movies. And so I went, I want to do that. I want to do what he did. And I had the good fortune to, to do just that. You now, Ed, you have 329 IMDb credits. <laughs> Are you ready to play IMDb quiz time? I, I, I say a random yes. IMDb credit and you tell us the plot of the episode. Mm-hmm. Are you ready to play? So let's I'm begin. Ready. Okay, let's begin with my my three sons. The episode is entitled "The Computer Picnic." How prescient! And you play Marv. Marv is a guy that's gotten like Chip has. Chip was one of the three sons, played by Stanley Livingston, and so Chip has gotten a computer date. But it turns out the computer back then had malfunctioned, as they do sometimes today, and it put him with a a very tall girl, and he's a shorter gentleman, and so it was kind of a bad fit. And so I said, well, I'll trade. You got to tall. I'm tall. I was tall back then at age 17, almost 18. I said, I'll trade your girls tall. But I was kind of a shyster, this guy Marv was, because <laughs> my girl had a broken arm and she couldn't even go to the picnic. Oh. You know, so I'd given somebody who was able, wasn't able to, to get the prize, which was going to the picnic with uh, Chip. That was the plot as much as I remember. That was pretty good. That's pretty good. All I right. can't remember stuff that far back. Adam 12, you played Bud. Yes, I steal... No, I actually did not steal. It looked like I stole some <laughs> rims off a car. And this guy, his name is Leo, and he wrote the episode two, and he was in it, a character actor. I'll think of it as Leo Gordon. Leo Gordon wrote the script and was knew a lot about law enforcement, and he puts me in these little handcuffs that are like thumb handcuffs. <laughs> oh, God. Cuff your thumbs together because <laughs> he had knew that I'd stolen these rims, these expensive magnesium wheels, but it turned out I hadn't. I had the receipt and everything. I had bought them. And so he was kind of being a... You know, and he was not a real cop. He was like a security guard that did this. And so Kent McCord and Marty Milner took him away and cuffed him because he was acting above the, he was vigilante time. Oh, my Fantastic. gosh. Wow. That's great. Okay, Nanny and the Professor, you play Richie Cooper. Nanny and the Professor. I remember being on the set. <laughs> I remember zero about the plot. Isn't that interesting? Nothing. I remember being there at 20th doing it. I wonder if it's because that's, that's not a show that gets rerun as much as the other two that I mentioned. Yeah, and I, I have no idea 
anything about. I don't know what the show is about. Oh, well, there's a <laughs> nanny and then there's a professor. Yeah. It's all in the title, Ed. I don't remember who was who. It's Richard Long. Richard That's Long. right, Richard Long. And then there's a nanny. And yeah. of course he needs she a nanny. She's British, right? Yes. British woman was a nanny, Richard Long. He was very nice, by very the way. Very handsome. I'd seen him in other shows and liked him. He was very, very nice, but remembered nothing. But I couldn't, sitting here, I was going, I know the guy that was in I'm going to impress you by knowing the name Richard Long. Couldn't come up with it. It's okay. It's a name I know. I know who Franklin Pangborn is. I know who Thelma oh. Ritter was. But I couldn't think the other day playing this friggin' crossword game, I couldn't think of the name Sean Connery. Okay? I couldn't think of the friend's name sometimes. Not because I didn't know who it was. I knew he was in Run, uh, Red October, Hunt for Red October, whatever it was. I couldn't. I knew he was a first James Bond, but I couldn't think of his name. What is that about? Do you do you ever do the alphabet thing? When I can't come up with a name that I know, I know I go through the alphabet, and and sometimes my brain will stop at the letter at the right letter and give it to me. That's a, I'm going to try that. Yeah, it works because I do the crossword every day and love it, and I can do the crossword. I remember incredible things I don't know that I know, but I couldn't think of that name the other day, Sean Connery. What the hell is going on with my brain? Okay, I want you to continue. This is a great game. Oh, yeah, I, I have a couple more. But, I, but, but yeah. hang on one okay. second, because he's he's referenced the crossword puzzle. Yes, he has. And I have and an Ed Begley the... crossword anecdote. Okay, he brought this into the studio, with, I know. which my means visual he aid. goes everywhere In with it. In case there was some downtime here and you guys were busy with another guest. <laughs> this I guy is ready to be on a out. set. So we're at the 40th anniversary of the Comedy Store. Yes. Do you remember being there? And you and yes. I were backstage waiting to go on. Yes. I was going to perform and you were going to just go out and talk or do whatever you were going to do. And we're all nervous. I mean, it's the 40th anniversary of the Comedy Store and lots of famous people are in the audience and everything. And, and we're all stoked about going on stage. But Ed's doing a crossword puzzle and he's on the phone with Harry Dean Stanton <laughs> trying to get the answer to the crossword puzzle. Exactly right. Am I lying? You're I telling the lying. truth. That's exactly right. <laughs> Harry would call me every single day. He didn't miss a day. Have you done it yet? <laughs> and so I would always became it because he stays up till like three in the morning and I go to bed fairly early and get up early. <laughs> so I would always answer yes when he said Then he'd be pissed off because I'd done it before him. What the hell is the answer to this? <laughs> Spotted at the prom. <laughs> it's only four letters. Nothing fits. I saw him, a spy. What is fits? I said, it's acne. <laughs> no, it's spotted at the prom. The answer is acne. What do you talk about? How does acne, what does it have to do with being in a prom? Acne. You wouldn't. Uh, it's a sat pun. in the dugout. I but said, everybody else is scared to death, and you were completely involved in your crossword puzzle. Couldn't have cared less about going on stage in a few minutes. It, was it is the joy of my day. I do it every day, and it just... And now this is this is weird, because you see no date on this. Do you know why? Because this is only Tuesday, and Tuesday is a miserable day for me, because it's so easy, you're done with it in five minutes. So this is... Uh, this is what's his name's uh, Will Short's book of the hard. He's Saturday, a New York the, Times guy. The yeah. toughest of Saturdays. He has a book of them, so I copy it and I put it, you know, on a little clipboard, and then I can do it if I have downtime. Anyway, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I had no, to tell my Ed crossword puzzle story. That is, that is fascinating. I and I like his old school method. He's got a pencil, a clipboard. His, this is great. So, all right, here we go. This one is might be a little tougher, but I only need one answer. You appeared on seven episodes of Room Two Twenty Two, playing Bob, Willard, Stretch, George, Michael. I'm not sure who who else, who all else, but can you tell us one plot line? Yes, uh, Stretch Webster. I kind of remember that one. I think it's the most recent one I did. And at that point, I was like 23 or something. I was really pushing it. I can't believe they're still casting me as a high school student, but they were. I guess I looked young back then. At any rate, uh, Stretch Webster was a guy that was, uh, there was a young lady played by Angela Cartwright, I believe. She was, uh, was a, an attractive young woman, and she was wearing a sweater at the high school and what have you, and she was a very curvaceous young lady, and I was looking at her as a basketball player and getting distracted. So my parents were like trying to tell her, get her to wear a bra or something. <laughs> so I wasn't distracted. You know how easily men are distracted. Yeah. And so I mean, thus, thus the burqa. Exactly. Exactly. Make her change. Make her wear a burqa because I couldn't play <laughs> basketball. Blame it on the woman. It's always the women. And that's basically the plot it's of that show. It's our responsibility to keep men from having thoughts. That's very funny. That is that is awesome. So I wanted to talk to you about something I read on your Wikipedia page, and that's that when you you were growing up with your mom and dad, and your your mom died when you were a little boy. Yeah, I was seven when she passed. 
And then later in your teens, you found out that she she had not been the mother who had given birth to you. Is that correct? Right. She was gone a fair amount of the first seven years of my life. She had cancer and was in and out of hospitals, but she finally passed away when I was seven. And I would go as any young man would to visit her grave there out, out in Long Island. We went to grade school out in Long Island, my sister and I. Then when I was 15 and a half, I was soon to be 16 and soon to get a driver's license. I was able to get my learner's permit at the DMV. And to get that, we had to stop. My dad and I had to go to his business manager's office on Wilshire. We lived in the Valley. And we would we went to the office on Wilshire. He handed me an envelope because there I would have in it my birth certificate and I could get a learner's permit. So I open up the envelope. Just I, Geez, I've never seen my birth certificate. What does it look like? And I look at it. And Dad's driving and I look at it. Dad? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no mother's name in the birth certificate. It's blank. Why is that? Do they erase it when your mother dies? I don't get it. No, Amanda wasn't your mother. He just like keeps driving. It wasn't even, forget about a, you know, a father knows best moment. He doesn't even pull over. <laughs> I'm talking about what a great daddy is. This is a little contrast to that. <laughs> so he keeps driving. So, well, who is my, who was my mother? He says, Sandy's your mother. <laughs> you know, several TNT blasts in the side of my head. Because there was this woman, Sandy, that I would see Christmas time, Easter, sometimes Valentine's Day, Halloween once in a while, get some candy from her. She's this woman my sister and I were crazy about. And she was our mother. And uh, so suddenly it was, you know, as sad as that is, it was kind of good in a way. Now I've got a mom. My mom was dead. Now she's not dead. And And it was, it was, she wasn't a stranger. It was somebody who was already, already in your heart. Knew a little bit. You know, we didn't see her often. It was kind of, and at this point we hadn't seen her in years, like maybe five years or something like it. But I used to see her a lot and always thought of her fondly. And, uh, and now here it turns out she was my mother and it all kind of made sense. I'm a year younger than my sister. She remembered more than I remembered. Because I'm sure there's some point we'd be going when we meet her. My sister might have said, or maybe I said, Mommy, no, no, sweetie, that's not your mommy. Your mommy's <laughs> over here. That's not mommy. Uh, something like that must have happened. Because one day she started, my sister started walking away from the bus stop when the bus was approaching to pick us up. I said, where are you going? She said, I'm going into Manhattan to see Sandy. She walked to the Long Island Railroad, not too far, got in a seat, talked to a woman. A kid traveling with an adult would ride free or something. And so she rode with her, went to... Grand Central Station and walked around going, where's Sandy? She thought Sandy lived at Grand Central Station. Sad. Wait, is Sandy your sister's mom too? My sister's mom too, correct. Wow. So when was the decision made that you guys would be raised by your dad? That's a very good question. There's so much odd about all of that. I don't know how my father, I don't know what happened between my father and my what turned out to be my stepmother who died when I was seven, how he convinced her that he had found a couple of kids in the alley that looked like him. <laughs> he didn't tell her? Yeah. That he had had he an was, affair? I, yeah, I don't. She was my mother. My uh, birth mother was an, a page at NBC. And my uh, what turned out to be my stepmother, she was in the hospital. She had cancer, wasn't expected to live. And he had not one but two kids with this woman. And I don't know all that went on, how he... But he certainly or was never married he to was, my birth mother. He, he, gotcha. he was in a, a better position to take care of you, too? It might, I, have, been, he definitely it might was. have been economics. I loved my dear mom, my birth mother, but had I been raised by her at 300 West 49th Avenue, where she lived, things wouldn't have been so good. He was a fine father and took very good care of me. And she, with all her great qualities, was kind of a, not kind of, she was a hoarder. Stacked mm. up to the ceiling, Fritz. And when I, oh, you wow. hear things like that, yeah, stacked up to the ceiling. No, right. No. Stacked up to the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Stuff that you don't really need. Wow. Yeah. It's an amazing story. Wow. Yeah, amazing. And I have to talk about the Christopher Guest movies uh, because um, they're some of the funniest movies ever made, in my opinion. And he always uses this core group of players, you being among them, and all the other ones, Eugene Levy and Fred Willard and Parker Posey and Catherine O'Hara, uh, hires these same group of players like they, like the, it's, it's like an ensemble. How is that as an experience? And are they what they seem to be mainly improvised? And how does that work? My history with Chris is a long and wonderful one. I met him through his sister Alyssa, and I also knew him a bit from the National Lampoon, from Tony Hendren and the others that worked there, Doug Kenny and all those that worked at the Lampoon. I knew him from that. He worked on that Radio Dinner album, that very funny National Lampoon album. 
and he was a great musician, is a great musician, a great comedian. And so at some point, he and Rob Reiner and Michael McKean and Harry Shearer decided to do this Spinal Tap yeah. you know, movie, and I got happily pulled into just not to be in the movie. They were going to do a little 10-minute presentation reel, and part of that was like a flashback to the old you know, mop-top kind of English invasion band thing with us <laughs> playing in black and white. It would never be in the movie. It would just be you know, something to help raise funds for the movie or something. But then when they started to put things together, they went, it's supposed to be low res and low quality. We can use that footage, sign here, and you'll be in the movie, and it's SAG and everything. And so I was in Spinal Tap with those guys. Then Chris got to do, got to do. They were lucky to have him do a movie called The Big Picture. And then he did Waiting for Guffman in a different style than a scripted thing. And I was not in that, but that is my favorite movie. I have no bias because I'm not, I ain't in it, but I sure love that movie beyond words. And then he called me in for Best in Show and then every movie and TV show thereafter. Oh. So I'm just blessed. I've seen Best in Show 15 times. <laughs> I at love least. you, pal. And, and just tell me what the site, uh, what, what the set is like. Is it what it seems to be, which is a lot of improvisation? Does he come in there with an outline like uh, Larry David does and said, okay, we have to get to point A to point B and you fill in the blanks? How does it work? Yes, it's exactly that. He and Eugene Levy, and now it's him and uh, uh, Jim Piddick, they do all the heavy lifting. They spend six months or a year writing you know, the treatment for one of these shows that he's done recently is the ones like Guffman that they did years ago with Eugene Levy. They do all the hard work of writing that treatment. But then when you get on set, it's just a slug, you know, this big, like a couple of inches, like a fortune cookie. You know, Jerry and Cookie Fleck check into the hotel. The credit card doesn't work. That's that's what it is. But the they, the Jerry and Cookie, is played by Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. So I get to be across... The, the check-in desk from Eugene and Catherine, I'm a fan beyond description oh, of SCTV and them yeah, and everything they've ever done. So I just got to say as little as possible <laughs> and not start laughing uproariously. Just my job is to be like Easter Island or something and just <laughs> stay there. And so uh, I, just, I just had the best time doing that in everyone since. I just love Chris so much and everybody. Fred Willard, rest his soul, and all those great people that have been part of it for years. Uh, I, I, I just love getting that call from Chris that he's doing something. And to me, it always seemed like it was a group of the cool kids in high school who put, they let the cool kids put on their own play. <laughs> and you knew you would never be accepted as part of that group, but you just wish you could experience whatever it was they were experiencing as time went on. I just, I just love them. I'm thinking of what's going on in their mind even more than what they're saying. Cause it, me you, too. Know, you can tell they're, you can tell they're improvising. That's and so I, I, I guess Guffman, there was talk for a while that they were going to turn that into a Broadway musical, or maybe still are, right? Am I right about that? I didn't know that, but that's a very good idea. Just a rumor, I'm... yeah, because it was a musical, and then it would it would be an easy translation. So What a good idea. Yeah. I never heard that. That's a great idea. I'm going to ask Chris about that when I talk to him. I, I hope that is something in the works. Not that I would be in it. I can't sing a note, but uh, I would love to Just see it. Just a rumor. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I would like to talk about some of your environmental activism. And I understand that your sworn environmental combatant is Bill Nye, the science guy. Could you tell us about this battle? He's my neighbor, yeah. former neighbor. <laughs> we lived a few doors down, and we were in a fierce competition to see who had the lowest bills, lowest natural gas bill, lowest electric, lowest water bill. And he, full disclosure, he would beat me often, but he has one person in his house back then when I was his neighbor, I had three. So okay. that was the problem there when he would beat me. But per capita, I always beat him. Okay. Now I've, I'm the one that's cheating because I moved a, a mile east of where I used to live with Bill Nye and another street in Studio City. I moved a mile east and now I'm in a lead platinum built from the ground up home. So you can do a lot when you build from the ground up. Okay. We were both at the time we had the competition living in 1936 homes that you can only make so energy efficient, mm -hmm. then you, you know, the walls are so thin, you can't do what you'd like. It doesn't have passive solar design with most of the glass on the south side of the building. You know, there's a lot you can do with that. We put in a 10,000 gallon rainwater tank underground. You know, there's a lot you cannot do. 12 inch thick walls on and on. We've done a lot. And so I have a very energy efficient home. So eat that, Bill Nye. Where did this uh, um, community passion come from with you, both environmental and your social outreach things. Where, where did that come from? Was that your dad or was it just- Definitely my dad. He was a conservative that liked to conserve 
proving this shouldn't have party affiliation. It should be bipartisan, nonpartisan. You know, he just turned off the lights and turned off the water and saved string and saved tinfoil. He was the son of Irish immigrants. He lived through the Great Depression. And that's what you did. So Mm -hmm. I was raised with that deep in my bones and my DNA. And my mother was like that, too. Even though I wasn't raised with her, she was, by nature of her hoarding, she was kind of a recycler of sorts, too. She hated to throw anything away. In her case, it became a, a huge impediment. And I've never allowed that to happen. Stuff, if stuff comes in to be recycled, it quickly goes, you know, goes out and gets a second use. But um, it was my dad, and he died within a few days of the first Earth Day. And so I always remembered what he told me when I would complain about the smog you know, in the late 60s, before he passed, I'd say, I hate this smog. He said, Eddie, I know what you're against, but what are you for? What are you doing? You know, and so I started riding my bike more and taking public transportation, what have you. And so I even bought a 1970 electric car because of him. I just looked in the phone book knowing I wouldn't find anything, but just to satisfy my recently deceased father, I looked to say I checked and tried to buy an electric car in 1970, looked in the Valley phone book knowing it wouldn't be under... What the hell is this? Electric cars. <laughs> right there in the phone book. Call up the number of this guy, Dutch and Reseda. Sold California license plate, registered in California, electric vehicles. Now, when I say electric vehicle, I'm talking about, I'm being quite grand. I'm talking about a, a golf cart with a windshield wiper and a horn, okay? <laughs> yep, I remember seeing it, you very, in that. You know, yeah. it had a top speed of 20 miles an hour, had a range of 20 miles, but it was 950 bucks, which wasn't a bad price for a used car back then. And it was much, much, much cheaper to fuel. I plugged it into the outlet, and my electric bill didn't go up much at all. And it was also much cheaper to maintain. There was no expense whatsoever to maintain it. No tune-up, oil change, fan belt, radiator flush, valve job, smog check, none of that. So I've, I've had electric cars most of my life ever since, and I, I really like it. It's you know, not just good for the environment. It's good for my pocketbook. And that's another benefit I get from my dad. Everything I did that was, you know, green as in the environment. It was good for the other kind of green, my budget, you know, for green money. It's always saved me money because I did it in the right order. I did the cheap and easy stuff first. It's a zero emission vehicle at the tailpipe because you're not burning any fuel in the vehicle. But if you charge it at home, you could be using some utility power from coal or natural gas or nuclear. We're using none of that for this car because I have nine kilowatts of solar electric on the roof of my house that runs the house and charges the car. Well, my goal is to own a Tesla. I can't right now because my daughter goes to a very expensive university, but I'd like to own one. But I think we're going to hit the tipping point with electric cars in this country when two things happen. One, when they get the battery storage up just a little bit more. Yep. And when we build the recharging infrastructure, which is actually part of this new Biden infrastructure program. It is. When we get, he wants to do you know, 8,000 recharging stations around the United States where people can trust that they can leave home and not get stuck somewhere and not be able to get back home. When people trust that, I think the the doors will fly open. I agree. I used to have to go on long trips, Ritz. I had, first of all, it was a natural gas car. Before we knew, before I knew what people know now about fracking and what have you, it was cleaner out of the tailpipe. So I drove a natural gas car for years trying to do the right thing. No foreign oil and cleaner at the tailpipe. But then I got a hybrid because I started to hear about fracking and I got cross country in that. But now I have just an electric because I did, I was on a series for a few years and I got myself a Tesla. And that Tesla Tesla infrastructure is what Joe Biden wants to have for everybody. The yeah. availability mm-hmm. of not just inexpensive cars, but the charging infrastructure. You can drive right now today cross country up and down California. In every state, there's chargers everywhere for Tesla and they need to be chargers for every kind of yeah, car yeah. and there will be with this new plan and it, it works today there's i have uh nearly 400 miles of range in my car and so that's a pretty good that's that's good. a good run i go to albuquerque to work and i stop in needles for breakfast about a half hour or so i'm done i get in the car again i stop in flagstaff for lunch half hour 35 minutes maybe Next stop is Gallup, New Mexico for dinner. And then do I'm. Do you charge at those places? Charge each time. For mm-hmm. just about 30 minutes is all you need. You don't mm-hmm. need to do it forever. Just grab some breakfast. 30 minutes later, I'm ready to get in the car, make it to the next stop easily. With And they're very good about it. it gives you, they don't let you 
uh, finish, you know, charging until you have some buffer in case. Oh, wait, this one, there's too many cars parked in Flagstaff. I'm going to direct you to Holbrook, Arizona. Wow, it's wow. very Great. sophisticated That's the fantastic. way the computer has it. So that it. shows it, up on your dashboard? It shows. All you do is I put in the address, the final address in Albuquerque. I punch that in. It says, we, we're going to recommend that you stop in Needles first and then Flagstaff next. And then if things change, it goes, no, no, we want you to charge instead in, you know, Kingman, Arizona. You know, it's very good with, with that. That's, that's, and that's going to be amazing. good for businesses along the way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right now, the businesses, the breakfast stop, there are needles is where I eat. You know, they're getting people that are stopping there more often. All of them, you know, they're right near places where people like to have extra commerce and, you know, more customers. And so it's, it's win-win for everybody. And it's also social because you're going you're gonna to talk to people who are on a similar adventure. Exactly. It's very social at the charging stations. I, I can't wait for that to happen. I, I think it's going to change the global politics. You know, when we, it's going to lower our carbon footprint and the whole deal. I can't wait for it to happen. Here's the best thing about electric cars. It's the following. You cannot make gasoline on the roof of your house. I happen to know this fact. <laughs> you can make electricity in the roof of your house because I've been doing it since 1990. It works. You know, mm-hmm. I've had a wind turbine since 1985 as an investment in the California desert, part of a wind farm. I know that wind power works. I know that solar power works. I know that energy efficiency works in homes and offices. When people want to, people come to me, Ed, I want a solar company to put panels on my roof. I said, here, I give them a number. They go, what the hell is this? Home energy audit. I want solar. I said, no, not till you get a home energy audit and reduce your demand first. They may try to sell you six, seven kilowatts. You might only need four or five. Make your home more energy efficient first with cheap and easy light bulbs, weather stripping, Energy-saving thermostat, you know, insulation. Do that first, then you get your solar system. All right. So, Ed, when you get the home energy audit, does the same company help you meet the goals that they've recommended for you? They give you a list of stuff, you know, low-hanging fruit, medium-hanging fruit, and get the ladder top of the tree stuff like solar or an electric car. You know, they give you that stuff in a list, A, B, C. And so you go right away, any sensible person would do, well, I don't know about this energy audit companies or any of this, but Begley told me to do it. So I, you do the first ones. You get the energy efficient light bulbs, you put some weather stripping up and you get an energy saving thermostat, walk away from it. Let's see what happens. Instantly, your bill's going to go down. I promise it as I sit here with you. Everybody's bill always goes down in an impressive way. They call me, Jesus Christ, this works. They right away want to go medium ticket stuff and do some of that stuff that they can afford. And eventually, if you make enough money and save enough money, you can go for the go booyah and get the solar on your roof. Have you gotten to the point now where you're feeding power back to the grid? What I mean is, I, I think if you save enough energy, you get to a certain point where you're actually giving uh, power back to the power company and get rebated. Yes, and at the most important times I'm doing it, I'm doing it when they need it most, is a computer in the Tesla Powerwalls. I have two Tesla Powerwalls also in my house. So it figures when they need power, mostly 1 to 5, sometimes 1 to 9 you know, p.m., it's sending it all, all the power from the solar at that time that it has, and then you use it when you need it. Now, I have an unusual situation. I can't get by with, you know, just the power on my roof anymore because I'm charging three electric cars that uh, for my daughter drives a, she drives a Chevy Volt but never buys gasoline for it. It's always electric because she stays within the range of it. My wife has a Tesla and I have a Tesla. And then my grown daughter comes over and charges there too because she's in an apartment, doesn't have any ability to charge. So I'm, I'm a charging station for four vehicles. So I'm using a lot of cheap nighttime power because I also buy, the only power, power I buy is after 10 p.m. I'm sorry, after 8 p.m. and before 10 a.m. That's the only time I buy power because otherwise I can make it with my nine kilowatts of solar. It's, it's past the peak of the day. The peak exactly. Of the day, yeah. It's past the peak of the day, and it's very inexpensive. The basic base power that I'm buying is like three or four cents a kilowatt hour, I think. But then I add another three cents to it. Happily, with a smile, I pay three cents extra for green power. And this is a real green power program. It's not just taking title to some hydro plant in Idaho that's been around since 1936. You just It's a feel-good thing when, when you do that. Because there's nothing new going into the grid. When you buy green power from L.A. and many other municipalities like that that have a good green power program, they're putting new solar, new wind, new, new geothermal into the grid when you buy that extra power. Okay, so when you pay for the extra power, you're definitely getting it uh, from someplace that is environmentally sound you can, instead of just coming off the, uh, 
You're power getting grid. it from the green, green WP, the green uh, DWP program. It's from their grid, but it's not like if you take um, if you take uh, money out of an ATM, two hundred dollars cash, and then you put it back in the the bank. They're not, you know, it's not always the same twenties that you're putting in the bank and taking out, mm. but it's a real cash transaction. So if you have a program like DWP where they're putting new power into the grid, not just taking title to something existing, then you're really making a difference when you buy each kilowatt hour. That's the kind of, and Edison has a similar program, Southern California Edison does, and many other power uh, utilities across the nation have it. You want to buy one of those, with, and uh, Native Power is another one. Some indigenous people uh, have organized that called Native Power. And uh, so it's like a take a penny, leave a penny kind of concept. It's that kind of a thing. But it's a real you, you just want to stay away from the ones that are feel good kind of things where you're taking title to something existing. You know, what, you, what do you think about this very disturbing report that came out from the WHO two weeks ago, the World Health Organization, about the dire situation that the climate is in right now? Many people have described it as being beyond the tipping point that we've already gone up to 1.5 degrees Celsius that we were warned against. It showed up 30 years early. Do you have any feelings about that? I do. You don't want to depress people and just talk about doom and gloom, but you can't also, you don't want to lie the other way. No, it's going to be fine. We're going to save everything. We just got to really get going now and put some more weather stripping and light bulbs. It'll be great. Recycle. We'll be, we'll be fine. That's not going to cut it. We're going to, sadly, with what's happened already, what's in the pipeline, there's going to be loss of species. There's going to be some serious changes. This weather's going to be bad. Wildfires and weather, you know, storms and hurricanes, more intensity, you know, more uh, often. That's going to happen. But it's going to be better if we do more now. We're going to alleviate some of the species loss. We're going to make it so it's not so bad we can't survive if we act now. We can't save everything now, but we can save a lot. We want to save what's left is what it's about. I know. It's amazing that some people still have their head in the sand because everything is now obvious. The Pacific Northwest has never seen temperatures at 118 degrees, inland Oregon and inland Washington. The fires have just broken records. The number of hurricanes, the severity of hurricanes, the number of tornado outbreaks, the severity of tornado outbreaks. In Miami, they already have street flooding every year. I mean, the the sea level is already rising. I mean, I don't know what else it takes to activate a political will to get this done. Some of it's part of the infrastructure program, Biden's infrastructure program, great, but I, I think it needs uh, even more surgical work right now. I really Whatever do. awareness we have, you own a big piece of it, Fritz, because you always talked about it. You took it seriously early on. When the scientific consensus was such that they said, no, this is really happening, you were very scientific about it and spread the word about it and talked about it with your weather forecast. So hats off to you, pal. You were a beacon with some, some bad information coming from others. Well, as much as they let us do it. I know. You, you know, couldn't, you couldn't it, hammer it no, every No, and it, it's the short American attention span. Like 10 years ago, I would get five minutes to do the weather. And then with the short American attention span, I ended up with two minutes. So you have to do the weather for nine microclimates and then do a little discussion about climate change. You can't do it. So it was honestly having not enough time to present very important information. But you still did. You got it in there. Tried it's that to. bay leaf in the soup that made the difference. Tried it's to. that thing of, you know, people like they're trying to, you know, they had little non non dolphin dolphin safe tuna years ago there's just like a, a brief can of it in some movie back when it got people's awareness about dolphins that that small message sometimes can get through to people and you were part of that it wasn't always a small message you devoted real time to it as much as they let you Tried to. and god bless you for it fritz you, you. you were a beacon for years thank you well i'd like to close with a, a quote that i read uh, uh that's attributed to you Ed Begley Jr. in your Wikipedia, it's, it's, you're quoted as having said that your role models changed from the people who had an incredible brief spurt of creativity, so like a lot of people died at age 27, who right. we are now the stuff of legend, but you said that you kind of gravitate towards people that were able to go the distance and that some of your heroes are people that were able to su- uh, sustain long, meaningful careers in, in entertainment. Can you talk about some of those relationships? That's very true. For years, I had, like anybody, I thought, wow, Jim Morrison was a real hero. And, you know, all these, you know, actors and others and musicians that, you know, died early. Wow, that's that what a great life that is. Live strong, live hard. And 
but it, it changed. Suddenly I got to be 30 and had kids and had a house. <laughs> yeah, and I right. thought, Oops. no, my hero is now Jimmy Stewart. My hero is Gloria Swanson. They got grandkids and they seem very happy and their kids and grandkids seem pretty happy. And I'm going to go a different way with this. You know, I, 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 I just I changed my point of view. And, and here I am 71, almost 72. I have kids and grandkids and, uh, I've had a very lucky life. You know, I, I know I was born on second base. Ed Begley's son grew up in Van Nuys and a bit out on Long Island. Didn't get any luckier than that. And I'm in this business because of my dad. So I really, I'm a very lucky man. You don't so have 329 to... credits because of your dad. Yeah, I, 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 I want to I, I push back a little bit. Yeah. That. I, I mean, your dad got you the name. He may have gotten you in the door. But your talent got you the work. And your conscience gave you this amazing shadow that you've cast over the world with not only your performances, but your work of conscience. I just love the fact, first of all, that you're, that you're a very talented person who's comfortable in their own skin and, and you're so easy to relate to, but also that you've used your fame for good. You've changed a lot of people's thoughts about the environment, about electric cars, about all those things. And I, I think it's, it's not quantifiable to know how much you've changed uh, life in our world it's it's an amazing it's an amazing life you've had my friend bless your heart friends. really what a nice thing to say and both we, of you. we we, we got to plug a couple yeah of we want to talk about your products you can go to beg uh what's the website begley living yep. yeah begley living. and that's a lot to remember just go to edbegley.com too it leads to the same place as begley living edbegley.com or if you're on amazon you can just type in ed begley cleaning or just ed begley it'll come up at amazon and you'll see my cleaning products there they're wonderful certified EPA designed for the environment certification uh, that makes them very quantifiably clean. But most importantly, most importantly, they clean every bit as good as the, you know, more toxic kind of products. Wow. For years, I used vinegar and water and baking soda, and that stuff's fine. And I still recommend the people use it. They're on a tight budget. But, you know, then people, if that doesn't do enough, which it doesn't for a lot of people, then they get the 409, they get the ammonia glass cleaner. You can get these products. And there are other green products out there. I happen to like mine, but there's many other brands of green products in the cleaning products arena. Try one of them. Try mine, perhaps, or try one of them and see if it works. Ours work very, very well. Uh, Begley's Earth Responsible Products. Again, just go to Amazon or any search engine. Go Begley Cleaning Products. It'll come right up. And uh, we've got a floor cleaner. We've got an all-purpose cleaner. We've got a you know odor pet and stain remover. And uh, check it out. I, if you try it, I think you're really going to like it because pets are on the floor all the time, licking their paws and licking the floor. Kids are on the floor all the time, crawling around in all fours, putting their fingers in their mouth. You don't want them to be, you know, in a toxic environment, putting that toxic stuff in their mouth. And people regularly, me among them with signs saying, stop that hazardous waste site near my house, protesting with my friends in Love Canal. Stop the hazardous waste site near my house. Where's the worst hazardous waste site? It's in our house, in under your, our in sink. The we're making right, our kitchen. In the right. you know, stop, get rid of that stuff. And, you know, I think people um, um, are becoming more savvy about this stuff. Yes. I sold my home and I temporarily had to live in Tolaria, which is the apartment complex over the Whole Foods market in Burbank. You know that big Oh, I know it well. Yes, great. yes, I know it. And, and it's a great store. It is. And I go in there and buy my dinner because I just had to go down two floors. But it was amazing. And how, first of all, the variety of things, environmentally conscious things they give you to buy in there. And second of all, how popular they were. People had baskets full of this stuff. I'm one of them. I go there yeah. and shop there regularly and yeah. get everything. I'm not growing in my backyard. I, I think people have maybe turned the corner on that stuff. I, I think they have. It's gotten very mainstream. It used to be a fringe thing. You have to, yeah. used to go, have to go down to Lancashire from there. They had the good life. It was a health food store. Magnolia and Lancashire, the good life. And I would shop there. That place, Jack LaLanne, I think had interest in a place down in Sherman Way in Reseda there that I would go another health, full of life or something. I can't remember. The, it doesn't matter. But two places in all of the valley. Now there's a lot more. Whole Foods oh, has everything you could want. Now it's hip. That's right. And you can charge your electric vehicle while you're shopping there. <laughs> good there point. There you go. Full circle. Fritz, 
Let's tell people before we read the credits where they can subscribe to our show and how they can subscribe and leave a review that will help others find our show. All right, listen very close to me. If you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, it would help us a great deal to be more discoverable by potential new listeners if you leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. You'll find binge-worthy material. I'm telling you, recently we've interviewed Bill Medley of the Righteous Brothers, who's getting ready to do a new uh, Vegas run. I love run. him. Yeah, yeah he's, he's such so a good. great. It was so much fun. Mark Summers, uh, you know, he's he's the host and the king of slime from Nickelodeon. Richard Sturban from the Oak Ridge Boys was fascinating. The Livingston Brothers, we talked about my three sons. They were fantastic, part of our youth. You're going to have a chance to hear people from all walks of life. Keith Morrison, Henry Winkler, thank you for spending an hour with us, and we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. We love you, be safe, and thank you. All right, here come your closing credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Ed Begley Jr. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeManda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. That was so fun. It was so fun. You guys are so great to talk to. What a Come treat. Back anytime. Definitely. This I'll was great. I'll put in great. a charging station for you.